Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I just pray that as we continue to study Romans, that you would open up our hearts and minds to the eternal truth found in your word. I pray, Lord, that we will embrace it and that we'll apply it to our life upon leaving this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin a new chapter today in our study of Romans. But not only do we begin a new chapter, but we also begin a new section of the letter. And if I were to give you a very brief outline of the letter, which I think is appropriate as we start a new section this morning, I would outline Romans so far in this manner. Section number one, Paul labels all mankind apart from Christ is unrighteous. And I'll give you a verse at the end of that section. And in fact, we're going to go to Romans 3 because it bridges two different sections. Section number one, all of mankind is unrighteous. And in Romans 3, in summary of that first section, Paul wrote in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So no matter what we do, no matter how Valent our efforts are in trying to live a righteous life. No matter how hard we try to live a life according to the law of God, we will come up short. We're all unrighteous apart from Christ. Section number two in the letter is that salvation comes by Christ. And you'll see Paul bridge that gap from section 1 to section 2, again in Romans 3, in verse 21. But he goes, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law, apart from the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Section 1, we're all unrighteous. Section 2, salvation in righteousness apart from the law comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Section 3, and this is my wording, salvation is active. We don't believe in just a thought about God. 
We believe in the transforming power of God. And in Romans 6, starting in verse 1, Paul said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We do not believe in a static salvation, a stale salvation, that we have this stale ticket that we're holding on to, waiting to be exercised at the gates of heaven when we die. We believe that the believer walks in newness of life, that Christ is a transforming power. In the life of the believer, we believe in an active salvation. Fourthly, that salvation is for one purpose and one purpose alone. And that is for the purpose and glorification of God. So many times in our modern era that we find ourselves in, People have this idea that God is somehow a celestial Santa Claus there for you to beckon at your call so that he will provide you everything that your heart desires. That's not why God saves us. God saves us for his purpose, his glorification. And we see that written so eloquently. In Romans 8, 28, which reads, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And if you recall, I quoted Doug Moo quite frequently as we studied for an extended period of time, verse 30, which Moo described as the heavenly chain. In other words, you can't approach your salvation cafeteria style where you get to pick and choose what you want, that God is at work according to his purpose. And that purpose is moving us along from calling us to glorification where we stand before him in the finished product of his holiness. God's at work. Now we approach the next section which is found in chapters 9 through 11 to Paul's letter to the Romans. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he preached his series on the book of Romans, introduced this section of Scripture by pointing out 
the different views or approaches that one could take as they study these three chapters. Some theologians have approached Romans 9 through 11 with an emphasis on Israel's rejection of Christ. That this was the overall point that Paul was trying to make in these three chapters. That Israel rejected Christ. Other theologians point to predestination, God choosing as the overall theme or the main theme of Romans 9 through 11. Martin Lloyd-Jones takes a different track. He acknowledges Israel's rejection, and you can preach it that way. He also acknowledges predestination. You could preach it and study it that way. But Martin Lloyd-Jones believes that the main point that Paul is making in these three chapters as he completes chapters 1 through 8 is the theodicy of God. The theodicy of God. And you're probably thinking, what in the world does theodicy mean? And theodicy combines... Two different words, which basically means divine justice. Divine justice. Or you could describe it as the justification of God. It also describes how God, being a holy and righteous God, operates in a world that is evil. And I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones, as I also agree with the people that approach it from predestination or Israel's rejection of Christ. I believe that theodicy is the main theme, but can I answer those who don't believe in predestination by turning to Romans 9 through 11? And that answer is yes. It's a wonderful section of Scripture to argue Reform theology. Can I turn to it and study why Israel rejected Christ? And I can do that as well. So one and two are valid points. But the overall theme or message is defending the theodicy of God. And as we look at chapters 9 through 11... We could pose this question, why does God get to choose? Why does God get to choose? Because keep in mind, we've just finished chapters 1 through 8. And in chapter 8, you have that wonderful heavenly chain which starts off that he foreknew us and he predestined us. And in my theological beliefs, you cannot separate chapter 8 from your belief in the salvation and how God operates. Predestination is clear. You can't read John without seeing predestination 
throughout the entire book of John. And I remember getting into a, well, I wanted to get into a discussion of Reformed theology versus Arminianism, which is man gets to pick. Reformed, God gets to pick. Arminianism is that man picks. And I remember having this preacher that was quite upset with me because I believed in Reformed theology. And I said, well, let's debate the matter. And he said, I'm not going to debate you. And I said, well, you're not going to be debating me. Let's, let's look at the scripture. And so many people that want to emphasize the free will of man, they want to steer completely clear of Romans 9 through 11. As Paul lays out a extremely convincing and correct biblical view that God is sovereign. I have to agree with Charles Spurgeon when he said this, quote, No doctrine in the whole word of God has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. You want to get people's blood boiling. Just start talking about this idea that God is in complete control. In fact, it has often amazed me in my ministry to witness people who want to put God on trial for being sovereign. Somehow they want to justify their own shortcomings by putting God on trial. They want to charge God with some kind of injustice in their mind. Yet I have to say, I really shouldn't be surprised about this because this has been going on since the beginning of time. And to prove my point, Let's turn to the third chapter of Genesis. In the third chapter of Genesis, you see not only mankind sin, but you also see a conversation between God and Adam that points out man's desire to shift the blame And put God on trial. Genesis 3 verse 6. It reads, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, in a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? 
So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. In other words, Adam was saying, My sin, my sin, my disobedience is your fault. My sin and disobedience is your fault. You're not sovereign. That was the allure all along, wasn't it? If you would eat of the fruit, you would be like God. You would be sovereign. You'd be your own man, so to speak. It's been going on since the beginning of time. And Paul finds himself in this same predicament in Romans. In Romans 1 through 8, he lays out the state of man in the need for salvation apart from man. But he knows that he's going to have a counter argument as he writes this letter to the Romans. And the counter argument, the putting God on trial, if you will, is this question What about the Jews? What about the Jews? He knows that this is going to come up. He's anticipating the question. In Romans 8, he tells us that we have been chosen by God, just as the Israelites were God's chosen people. And he tells us in Romans 8 that we are kept by the power of God and that regardless of any trial or tribulation, that we will find ourselves complete at the end of the day, standing before him in our glorified state. This is what Paul is telling the church of Rome. But he knows that there's going to be some Jews that say, What about the Jews? What about God's chosen people that reject Christ? What about them? And as we progress in our study, we're going to see that Paul is going to answer them completely and convincingly. But I think there's a bigger problem here. And it goes beyond just that question. I believe the problem is is looking at somebody who has the audacity to ask that question to a holy and righteous and sovereign God. And yes, we're going to study Paul's dealing with the question of the Jews. We're going to study my favorite topic, predestination. But the real issue at hand in 9 through 11, is this question, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? Does God have the right to be 
totally sovereign. And you see Paul, to just give you a little taste of this, you see Paul deal with this in Romans 9, 14, when he writes, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Here Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah in reminding us that we're clay. He is the potter. We're the clay. He has the power and the right to shape us and mold us however he chooses for his power, his purpose, his glory, his benefit. He is absolutely sovereign. He's in control. He's in control right now. Not only was he in control in Romans 9, this very day, this very moment, God is in control of your life. It is such an important belief. But we have a tendency sometimes, I think, to live in the absolute present and forget the eternalness of God. His eternal power in His eternal sovereignty. And it reminds me of when Job was questioned by God. In Job 38, starting in verse 4, when God posed Job a series of questions. And in verse 4, He asked Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You know, as I read that and as I try in my own way to put myself in Job's place, as God asked him these questions, 
I can't help but feel like I'm about an inch tall. When God laid out his case for his sovereignty and his power. He is the creator. We are the created. He is all powerful. We are weak and fragile. He is all knowing. We are limited in our thoughts, restrained by our own experiences and prejudices. And we need to be reminded that in the 55th chapter of Isaiah, starting in verse 8, God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." Paul touches on this same thought just as the prophet Isaiah did centuries before. You will see him conclude our section 9 through 11 with these wonderful verses at the close of this section in Romans 11, 33 through 36, where Paul wrote, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. He's everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Creator. And as we study Romans 9 through 11, the one thing that I think that you'll come away with in the upcoming months is that you will come to this idea that He is absolute sovereign and we are to all bend the knee and give Him the glory and the praise. I love Romans 9 through 11. As I mentioned, as I opened up the book of Romans, it's a very difficult section of Scripture. It happened to be my second sermon I ever preached about 38 years ago. And I remember at that particular time, there was a preacher in the audience that had been my pastor earlier in my life. And he told me after the sermon, as I announced my text, he said, I thought to myself... Oh, no, (laughs) because I was really new at preaching. It's a wonderful section of scripture. I love it. I love it because I believe in predestination. I love it because doctrinally to me, it is a beautiful section of scripture. And if you aren't familiar with Reformed theology... You'll be familiar when we finish. But I think more importantly, as we study Romans 9 through 11, you can't come away from it without the realization that you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are recipients of a gift that is so wonderful 
and so marvelous that we truly cannot comprehend the extent of it all. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just come to you praising you for your word and truth. And I just pray that as we go through our study of the upcoming chapters, that you truly might reveal yourself to us. I pray, Lord, that we would be open to your truth to embrace it and accept it. And I just pray that if there's someone that does not know you, that they would accept you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, millcreekchurch.org.